Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at, as you have your outlines in front of you, I'm sure, the wisdom of fools. In our culture today, we find many presentations, depictions, and creations of it. It's been sanitized, plagiarized, popularized, minimized, magnified, and vilified. Athletes wear it, entertainers flaunt it, and advertisers use it. It's put on coffee mugs, letterheads, t-shirts. It's depicted in city seals, county logos, and state buildings. We put it on our earrings, our hand rings, and even our toe rings. We build buildings around it. We build buildings in the shape of it. And we have exposed it so much that the reality of its true meaning has been buried under the rubble of indifference. From Genesis to Revelation, we are presented with the facts of the day. The Old Testament looks forward, and the New Testament looks back. But both have this historical time as a central theme of its writings. As early as Genesis chapter 3 prophesies that one will come to defeat death, as well as in the Revelation chapter 5, we see the result of that sacrifice. You might have guessed I'm talking about the cross. The cross is the central focus of our Christian faith. It is the place where those who come are transformed. It is the central theme of this book we call the Bible. And it is the central theme of our Lord as we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And through that book we see of Jesus even announcing of this coming event. The struggle remains the same as it was in Jesus' day. His disciples argued, his critics plotted, but his true followers trusted. Some were curious, some were hesitant, and some were labeled as fools. And yet to this day, we witness the same responses, don't we? To some, a stumbling block wanting to see signs and wonders. To others, as idiots wanting to debate the philosophies of the day. The intellect stumbles mindfully, the philosopher stumbles emotionally, and the religious stumbles spiritually. I know that today is traditionally Palm Sunday, usually, but the message this morning relates to what Jesus' focus was as he entered the gates of Jerusalem, what he was looking towards, what he had been trying to explain to his disciples. It will be the culmination of his ministry and why he came into this world. The overwhelming shouts of Hosanna will quickly change in the matter of days to the undermining chance of crucify him, crucify him. When the people, trusting in their own wisdom, are let down. You see, Jesus was not a political or social or even a religious savior. That was what they hoped for. But he was much greater. He was mankind's savior and had to pay theirs and our penalty so that we might be saved from his ultimate judgment. This morning we're going to be taking a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's Paul's response to a church that was behaving badly. Aspects of those characteristics are prevalent even today. And we read in Matthew, as I referred back before, how even the disciples, after Jesus had told them of his impending death, a chapter later were arguing about who the greatest was of them. Caught up in their pride, they were missing the central message. And my prayer this morning is that the central message would not fall on deaf ears, that it would penetrate your heart and would make all of us here this morning wise as fools. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, the truth, the power, and the depth of your word. Lord, I pray that this morning, that not my words, but your word would ring true. That, Father, that out of my mouth would come what you've asked me to speak on. But more than that, it's what your word says in and of itself. Father, I pray for those ears that are listening, those hearts, Lord, those minds. That, Father, the message isn't made to be offensive, although it may be. But, Father, the message is to be truthful. And, Father, I pray that this morning that that would come through. So, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 
1831, in a tiny Eastern European country called Lithuania, oppressed Christians gathered to worship on a hill in the north, planting small handmade crosses in the ground where they knelt. The tradition grew, and at the end of the 19th century, there were 130 crosses on that small mountaintop. Years later, communist officials determined to destroy all symbols of faith among the Lithuanian people bulldozed the hill of crosses. Wooden crosses were burned, metal ones were used for scrap, and those of stone were covered over with dirt. The Soviet army guarded the hill, planning to flood the area so people could no longer reach it. Four times they forced they were forced to bring in tanks, for after the demolition the Lithuanian peasants secreted, secretly crossed, put crosses on the hill and mysteriously each time more appeared. Bulldozer atheism, as the Lithuanians dubbed it, lasted almost 20 years. When communism fell, the Lithuanians became an independent state. People flocked again to the Hill of Crosses, and today over 50,000 crosses stand on that small mount. People from all over the world come to worship in the tiny chapel there. One religious leader describes the site as our prayer and gratefulness to the Almighty. You see, the hill of the crosses in Lithuania symbolize, well, the indestructible power of the cross of Christ. It is one of the most obvious realities in the Christian faith that our symbol is the cross. In Christianity, In every form that it takes, there is some kind of cross as a symbol. Historically, there are dozens of crosses, and some of those crosses can tell what part of Christian history the people who use that insignia came from. Distinctive crosses, Greek crosses, Coptic crosses, Roman Catholic crosses, Protestant crosses, and even crosses of all different shapes and sizes. They They are commonly worn as jewelry by Christians, and non-Christians alike today. Nobody would argue that the single symbol, the insignia of Christianity, is the cross. But what is somewhat odd about that is what it represents. It was an instrument of torture and death, originally devised by the Persians and picked up by the Romans, and that some have said it was the worst instrument of torture ever devised by humanity. I think that most of us have been exposed in our lifetime to some kind of ancient instruments of torture and even some modern methods of torture. But nothing has been devised that is as torturous as the cross. It was the worst form of pain and suffering and ultimately suffocation ever devised. It was also an instrument of degradation because one was suspended there, elevated before everyone naked. It was also a representation of the ultimate shame heaped upon that person because only those who were the worst of criminals were ever found on a cross. Around the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, there were, according to some historians, at least 30,000 crucifixions in that part of the world and were carried out by the Roman government. And when they crucified somebody, they did it so in public places usually along highways, so that many of the highways in the land of Israel were literally surrounded by people who were dying or dead hanging on crosses. And yet, this instrument of torture has become the main symbol of all that is precious to our Christian faith. Not because of the torture and degradation it represents, but because of what Jesus Christ accomplished, literally in overpowering and defeating the intent of that cross and affecting redemption by that cross. It is obvious in the pages of the New Testament that the cross finds a prominent place devised to do mankind's worst as God has allowed it to accomplish God's best, namely our redemption. Every religion and every ideology has its own symbol. For the Buddhists, it's the lotus flower. In Judaism, it's the Star of David. In Islam, it's the crescent In this century, the communists were known for their hammer and sickle and the Nazis for their swastika. 
In our political day today, the Democrats have a donkey and the Republicans have an elephant. Given that background, some people are surprised to learn that in the beginning, Christianity had no recognized symbol. In the earliest days, Christians recognized each other by declaring, Jesus is Lord. It took several generations for the cross to become the universal symbol of our faith. If you're ever able to visit the catacombs of Rome, you will discover the crude drawings on the wall made by the earliest Christians in that city as they retreated underground during times of persecution. They drew pictures of Bible stories. And of course, they drew the fish that we so familiar see on cars and other things. I don't know how many of you know what it stands for, but it's an anagram for the Greek word ichthus, which translated means Jesus Christ, Son of God. But in the earliest days, they didn't draw the cross. That would come later. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott, an English 20th century Christian leader, notes that the cross did not become the common symbol of Christianity until the second century when the custom of making the sign of the cross on the forehead arose. By the time Emperor Constantine, the cross had become a well-established sign or symbol of the Christian faith. It's also noted that the word cross comes from the Latin word crux, which translates into our English word crucial. How appropriate. However, all of this world would have been unthinkable, excuse me, however, all of this would have been unthinkable in the first century. So terrible was a crucifixion that the word was not even spoken in polite company. If we wanted to make a modern day comparison, we might hang a picture of a gas chamber at Auschwitz in the front of our sanctuary, or an electric chair, or a guillotine around our neck. The very thought of wearing such a thing would deeply offend our current sensibilities. But that's what the cross meant for Christ. And that's why the Jews were scandalized by that cross. They could not conceive of a God who would allow his son to die that way. The Greeks, on the other hand, were another matter. They didn't practice crucifixion, so they didn't have any problems that the Jews did. They tended to look to philosophy as the answer to their deepest problems of life. The notion of a man hanging on a cross to save the world was just utter nonsense to them. It was not, logic, it was not a logical conclusion for the Savior to be portrayed in such an absurd way. Therefore, he can't be the true Messiah, let alone God in flesh. To the world, the cross is a symbol of shame and foolishness. Maybe even a threat to those who believe it's a symbol of wisdom, salvation, power and forgiveness, grace, and eternal life. Paul speaks often in his letters about the cross. And in the end of chapter 6 of Galatians, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, now we can get into our text. I know you probably thought, when, when is he going to get there? But I needed to establish this foundation so that you have an understanding of the depth and the breadth of the meaning of the cross. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church when he was visiting Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Corinth and Ephesus faced each other across the Aegean Sea. Paul knew the Corinthian church well because he had spent 18 months in Corinth during his second missionary journey. But while in Ephesus, he had heard about problems in Corinth. About the same time, a delegation from the Corinthian church had visited Paul to ask his advice about their conflicts. Paul's purpose for writing was to correct those problems and to answer questions church members had asked in a previous letter. So let's all turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and read along with me. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints with all who are in every place 
Call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which has been given to you in Christ, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterances and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you perfectly are joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you get the the crucial part of Paul's emphasis? In verses 4 through 9, we see Paul opens with words of encouragement. Words like, I thank God for you. You do not lack lack any spiritual gift. He will keep you strong and that you will be blameless. However, in verse 10, he confronts. He confronts their division, a serious situation for the early church that he needed to clear up and set the people straight. He is forceful. He is direct and passionate, as we see, as some translations say, I appeal to you, or I beseech you, or I implore you. There's a passion behind Paul's request. In verses 11 through 12, he exposes human rivalries. One of Apollos, one of Paul, one of Cephas, one of Christ. In verses 13 through 17a, he addresses their misplaced loyalties. In verses 17 through 18, then he gets to the heart of the problem. We see that the Corinthian churches were boasting of party slogans. It was a clear indication that they overvalued human wisdom. They overvalued human leadership, human abilities, and even human appearances. They had misunderstood the nature of the gospel they were quarreling over what Paul referred to as cleverness of speech or words of human wisdom. So now Paul is going to explain the differences between human and divine wisdom. These opening verses show that the gospel of Christ is absolutely not a class of human philosophy because it involves such a reversal of our human expectations. We could have imagined that God would work through the scandal of a Roman execution device. But how could that be? That would be like proclaiming salvation through the electric chair or a hangman's noose, as I said before. However, only God can demonstrate his power through a dying, a powerless criminal of the state. It undermines all our human wisdom. In the passage before us, there are three key phrases that I put in your outlines, and let us just look at those briefly. First of all, the word or the message of the cross, the foolishness and or the wisdom of the cross, and the power and the love of the cross. It's neat how verses 17 and 18, or 17 through 19 are kind of bracketed 
in between this, the way Paul addresses it, and then he, how he's going to explain it. He's answering their questions. Let's look at the first verse. For the word or the message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In contrast to their misplaced loyalties in verse 12 of, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, and so on, Paul says the message of the cross is the only legitimate loyalty they should cling to. And I dare say we should cling to that as well. He immediately puts the message in stark terms, the way he talks about those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It makes it clear that our destiny hinges on the meaning and the understanding of the cross. But our deliverance from causes of dissension in the body of Christ are also dependent on that very cross. The Corinthians misunderstood and the resulting divisions are not trivial. They are major departures from the message of the cross. The phrase, the word of the cross, could mean a couple things in the New Testament. First, it refers to the historical fact of the crucifixion of Jesus. This event teaches us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died a death wherein the penalty of our sin was placed on him, making it possible for salvation to be extended to those who believed and trusted in him. But in this passage this morning, the word of the cross suggests the judgment of the cross, that it makes on all human efforts to be righteous and wise. Paul will later refer to this as the offense of the cross. One writer wrote, the cross is often, excuse me, the cross is offensive because our highest aspirations, our tremendous human potential, our best motivations, our deepest human wisdom, and all our good intentions pale in comparison to the beautiful and sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. Christ was the wisest man who ever lived, yet he was placed under the judgment of God and suffered a horrible and shameful death. And that is the judgment on every one of us, from the brightest to the dullest. As believers, we can forget the judgment of the cross on our loyalty to human leaders, our selfish pride, and our false wisdoms. The cross has to be a powerfully controlling image for the life and health of the Christian community. And it has been said many times that we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. A couple books back. Romans chapter 3. lest we have any confusion. Start in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. And dropping down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one 
who has faith in Jesus. I don't know how much clearer that can get. If you are here this morning, as I was some years ago, telling myself and others, hey, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't beaten up anybody. I haven't done any of those things. It doesn't matter because God's requirement is perfection. I don't know any human being that has ever attained perfection other than the one that we read about in the contents of this book. That's how important the cross is because the purpose that Christ went to that cross was so that you and I wouldn't have to. I just got through giving you the background of what that looked like, the torment, the anguish. How many of us could have even lasted the hour? But God says, I have a solution because of that cross. I put my son on that cross for a reason. So if you leave here this morning, I don't ever want you to say that nobody ever told me I wasn't perfect. I'm telling you this morning, none of us here in this room are perfect. And because of that imperfection, all of us are judged. All of us have to pay a price. If we don't have Christ, we're going to pay the price. That's the truth. Don't argue with me. You can argue with God. It takes faith to put your trust in that. And only God can give you that faith to do that. Secondly, the foolishness and the wisdom of the cross. Spurgeon once wrote about two men who went out trying to disprove the Bible and ended up becoming theologians. He writes, We have two of the richest books of theology, extent that were written by professed infidels before they wrote the books. You may have heard a story of Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. I did look them up, by the way. I googled them, and uh, they were members of Oxford University. I believe they determined to refute Christianity. One of them took up the subject of Paul's conversion, and the other the subject of the resurrection. They sat down, both of them, to write books to ridicule those two events. And the effect was that in studying the subject, they, both of them, became believers in Christ and wrote extensive books which are now bulwarks to the church they hoped to have overthrown. Every man who looks the gospel fairly in the face and gives it the study it ought to have will discover that it is no false gospel, but a gospel that is replete with wisdom and full of knowledge of Christ. Amazing. Let's turn to, in 1 Corinthians, back to chapter 3. Paul spends a great deal of time in the first part of this book of 1 Corinthians talking about foolishness and wisdom. If you ever have a chance to go through it, it's pretty amazing. Chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 18. Let no one deceive you. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Sounds kind of funny. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world of life or death. All things present and things to come are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's is yours. Pretty amazing, because he's going to that place and letting us know that even all the wisdom that we possess in our mind is futile. The other day, our little granddaughter came over, and it is amazing that she knows how to deal with an iPhone. Now, on iPhones, and I'm not that familiar with it, but you who have iPhones know this. The little icons. Now, they're pictures, and little kids can identify pictures. And so her mom would say, go to where the itsy-bitsy spider is. And she'd look on the thing, and boom, she'd press it. And here comes a little song about the itsy-bitsy spider and all that jazz. Or you press another one, and a little 
kitty comes up. Shelly was showing that when you touch the kitty and it purrs or meows or does whatever. She's 20 months old and she knows more about an iPhone than I do. It's amazing to me. I was talking with Sam a couple, three weeks ago. Sam says the, 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 the new people that are, Sam is in his late 30s, let's say. <laughs> I, I'm not positive, but he's there. These kids that are coming in in their early 20s, he has a hard time catching up with the understanding of technology that they have. I mean, it's on breakneck speed in our society that we're gaining all this. And it's a good thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. God is not against intelligence. He's not against gaining knowledge. But what he is against is when those things take place of the wisdom of God. That's what he's getting to. Well, let's go back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 20 because Paul, right down here, starts to give a little bit more detail of what he's talking about. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of the world, since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For the Jews requested the sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Greek and Jew, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't believe? Somebody who's completely self-sufficient, has an impressive resume, maybe has achieved a great success? A lot of times when you're sharing with that person, they're offended by what you're talking about. Not uncommon. They don't have to be successful. It could be anybody. That kind of person is offended by the message because all their self-effort and their human understanding is put to a test. They are confronted by something outside what they think they know. The cross is an inescapable part of the process of salvation. And there are really only two responses. Either you're going to trust God and the salvation he offers, or you're going to trust in yourself and your own resources. Thus the cross divides humanity into two eternal destinies. I want to make that clear. There are eternal destinies. One is with Christ, one is not. But they are eternal. Paul here is asking three rhetorical questions. And in Isaiah 29... Francis Schaeffer says, Paul is echoing a rhetorical question, says, shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. How about in the book of Job? Quickly, I'm going to turn there to chapter 38. We, we know that when we go back to the book of Job, we see the struggle. We see the conversation, the communication that God is having between Job and himself. In the latter part, the first part of chapter 38, he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel? By words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Wow. Pretty good questions to ask all of us. We have a lot of answers, though, don't we? The Corinthians would have understood these three kinds of people when he asks, Who is the wise? Where is the debater? Who is the scholar? The wise men would be a general term for those who thought that they had all the answers to the problems of life. It would relate to our modern-day psychiatrists or psychologists. The scribe or the scholar was a Jewish figure that would correspond in our day to lawyers or academics, researchers, professors. The debater was a Greek term for those who verbally presented the ideas that they believed would solve all society's problems. Today, we might identify them as Social critics, pollsters, specialists, commentators, and yes, even politicians. Remember that the Corinthian church as a city loved intellectualism. It was full of dogmas, ideas, and doctrines of men who followed the great philosophers from the golden age of Greece. These Christians in that time assumed that this wisdom of the world could be added to the message of the cross. They didn't understand that the only wisdom of any value must be centered completely and solely on the cross. That's really the point. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The world says the cross is foolish. But God says, no, it's the world's wisdom that is foolish. In essence, he is asking what the true nature of human wisdom is. And the answer is, it's ridiculously absurd. It tries to sound impressive, and it may radiate all kinds of optimism, but has an overwhelming opinion of itself. Some years ago, an article was written by a secular journalist in in Time magazine. And he states, The truth is, that modern man is overimpressed by his own achievements. Now, Paul is not against knowledge. God created us to be inquisitive, to investigate, to gather knowledge, to be informed. The problem with fallen humanity apart from Jesus is that we still don't have a clue with the knowledge we have. The problem isn't with the knowledge, but with the wisdom that interprets and and applies the knowledge to concerns and struggles. Isn't that true? The first half of verse 21 says that the major fault of wisdom of the world is that it doesn't know God. It's replaced God by its wisdom. Despite the greatest scholars, uh, scholarships of all kinds of pretentious claims to have discovered the secrets of the universe, the wise man, the scribe, and the debater have all failed to discover and acknowledge the most important reality of all. God himself. No one can truly understand the nature, the natural sciences, the history of our race, or human psychology if they don't come to know God. Not just the God of our minds, or the ones we create, or the ones we philosophize over, or the ones we decide on, but it's the only God that it's revealed in the pages of this book that you need to understand. One writer wrote that We are, in our infinite wisdom, we came up some years ago with the name astronaut because they're out in space. Well, the Russians didn't like that, so they came up with the monochrome cosmonaut, which is higher. And the writer says, both are ridiculous. How far out in space have we gone? The farthest we have gone is to the moon, right? We have sent... Satellites beyond, I just saw the other day a news flash that there's a satellite that's actually taking pictures of Saturn. It's taken, I think, seven or eight years to get there and some more time to come back. But that's just our own little solar system. And if you've ever done any research about our galaxy, it is thousands and thousands and thousands of light years beyond what we see. Even when we find a black hole, the more developed our telescopes and so forth come, we find out there's something in that black hole. 
And then we look beyond and there's another black hole. And then there's something in that one. The universe is expansive. But we think we have the answer. We study stars. We study suns. We see how they function and immediately we say, that's how we were created. It takes a lot more faith, people, to believe that than it does to say, God created. But in our wisdom of this age, it's easier for us to accept. God has judged human wisdom because of its failure to achieve the highest good, to lead people into a relationship with Him. See, that's why it's foolishness. As a consequence, God saves us by a message that insults our human wisdom. Here's the, here's the catch in our pride. You see, to come to the cross of Christ, you have to be humble enough to admit that you are not perfect, as I was reading before. You have to be humble enough to understand that you are a sinner in front of a perfect God. You have to understand that in order to reach His height, you have to be perfect. It takes humility to understand that and to admit that. It's really hard for me, I don't know about you, to ask for forgiveness. You know, if Shelly and I are in a confrontation of sorts and things get out of whack, I'll try to, you know, categorize it in such a way where I don't say, you know what, I'm really sorry. But she'll always remind me. Why can't you say you're sorry? Man, it's so darn hard because I'm admitting I was wrong. And I don't like that. Why? Because it, it just gets in the face of my pride. But it's the same way before the cross of Christ. We, we argue, we fight. And you know what? You, you have the freedom to do that. But like I said before, there's two eternal des- destinies. And we will be in one of those two. We looked here and we saw that the Jews were demanding a sign in the Greek search for wisdom. But it says, but we preach Christ crucified, crucified and it was a stumbling block to the Jews and, and the Gentiles' foolishness. The Jews were demanding signs and wonders. If you remember when we were going through the book of Matthew, they requested signs and wonders several times. How could they request that when in their own midst they were visibly watching and seeing the signs and wonders? Who cannot imagine taking loaves and fishes and feeding 5,000 people? Is that not a sign or a wonder? You see, their minds weren't humble. Their attitudes weren't humble to see that God was providing those signs and wonders. You want to see a sign and wonder today? Look in the lives of people and how God has changed them. That's a sign and a wonder. I look at myself in the mirror and I go, Man, I wonder how God got a hold of me, but he did. And praise God, he did. To me, that speaks of God's power. In Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21, we see the great debate as Paul is in Athens. Let's turn there just for a quick moment. Acts chapter 17. See if this sounds familiar to us here. Now Paul waited for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. 
Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Wow. That was the modern day internet, or excuse me, the olden time internet. You want to know something? Google, go on the internet. There's great uses for it. I used it in preparing this message to get all kinds of information. But there's stuff out there that's destructive. But to accept the wisdom of God is to accept that people are weak and sinful, as I said before. Those whom the Spirit of God convicts for whatever ethnic background is here, it talks about Jews and Greeks, which talks about the whole earth, will find in the cross both godly wisdom and the power to transform their lives. In fact, the crucified Christ is truly the sign that the Jews craved because of his power and the ultimate truth desired by the Greeks because it's God's wisdom. It's right in front of them. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The second question is the nature of God. And it's summarized this way. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we take the sum total of human intellectual horsepower, all the brilliance and wisdom from human history we can ever imagine can't even come close to God's dazzling wisdom. If we lump together all the power we have to effect change, we can't even get near God's power. Paul is saying, what an awesome God this is. This is a statement of praise and worship. He bows down before the majesty of this astonishing God because what man can't do, God accomplishes by this simple word about the crucifixion of Christ and his judgment on the wisdom of men. When we take the Bible seriously enough to study and learn it, then we will hear what God has to say. If we humble ourselves before a holy God, he can speak to us. If we invite him into our lives, we have new life. Why? Because this scripture is alive. The reality of God's wisdom, if we open our eyes wide enough, is revealed. And all secular wisdom is defeated. So let's come to the last part as we get ready here to sum this up as Paul is saying in the last part of verse 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power. The power. That word power comes from the word dynamis, meaning dynamite. Have you ever seen on, I don't know if you've watched that uh, gold deal that's up in Alaska with the guys digging and stuff up there? Anyhow, you know, some, some people do digging and all that. Others get dynamite. And you've watched old programs and so forth. Uh, maybe an old Clint Eastwood movie where he takes a stick of dynamite and lights it on his cigar and throws it. Well, I remember doing that as a kid with firecrackers. Not a smart move. Because the fuses are not all the same. And sometimes the end of your fingers, if it doesn't go fast enough, man, it'll hurt for some days. Now, I know my dad's sitting here, and he doesn't know any of this, but now I'm revealing it. So he knows that we weren't all that good in those days. But could you imagine a stick of dynamite, and when you put many of them together, it can move mountains, Right? That's the kind of power that Paul is talking about. The contrasting viewpoint is held by those who are in the process of being saved, and that includes the Corinthian church, and all of us who have the personal relationship with Christ. We see the cross for what it displays, the power and the love of God. The power is at work in us who have been born again in the process of sanctification. It is a lifelong process, and it is one that we will never perfect. 
but always desire. In the book of Romans, we also see chapter 1, verse 16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, but it is the power. It is the power. Now, I don't want us to leave here worshiping a wooden cross, but I don't also want us to leave here without understanding the depth and breadth of what that means. Because it's the Christ on that cross that gives us the power. Not one of us can live a life that is described in Romans chapter 12. I have it on your outline. Not any of us can live that type of life without God's power. It is one that we, every day, ask God to make himself real in our lives so that we can make him real in others' lives. Those who observe J.C. Ryle writes, You may know a good deal about Christ by a kind of head knowledge. You may know who he was, where he was born, what he did. You may know his miracles, his sayings, his prophecies, and his ordinances. You may know how he lived, how he suffered, and how he died. But unless you know the power of Christ's cross, Unless you know that the blood shed on that cross washed away your sin, unless you are willing to confess that your salvation depends entirely on that work on that cross, unless this be the case, Christ will profit you nothing. Shelley was reading a book by uh, Amy Carmichael and gave me this. She says, if I covet any place on earth but the dust at the foot of the cross, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Wow. I've given you some things there about the revelations of the cross. That in the cross we see the clearest evidence of the world's guilt. Remember I said all have sinned? In the cross, we see the strongest proof of God's hatred of sin because Christ had to be placed on that cross because of our sin. In the cross, we see a glorious exhibition of God's love because our guilt was placed on Christ on that cross for our sin. And in the cross, we see the way to eternal victory because next week we will be celebrating the resurrection of Christ from that cross. How much does Christ love you? Turn with me as we close to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we might be checking or um, reading this on Friday. But it's here to make a point. Luke 23. Okay. Uh, You know, it's funny. I forgot to put down what I have on here. Oh, 32. Sorry. I'm sorry. Starting in verse 32, it says, There were also two criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is truly Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you were the Christ, save yourself. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, 
seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Why is that so powerful? Because they understood their guilt. Both of them did. One wanted to skate away and say, hey, perform a sign and wonder so I don't have to deal with this. The other one said, no. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to admit, yes, I am guilty and I deserve this crucifixion. That one are those who humble themselves before the cross of Christ. Two questions remain. Which guilty one will you be? Will you be the wise one who humbled himself before the cross of Christ? Or will you be the foolish one whose pride refused to recognize the cross of Christ? I pray this day that you ask Christ to help you. I pray that he helps you hear the message of the cross. That he helps you understand the wisdom of the cross. And that he reveals to you the power of that cross. Let's pray. Father, those are powerful words. And Lord, they're not mine, but they're yours. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts this morning. But Father, there is nothing in this world that is wiser, stronger, or more powerful than your word. It takes a leap of faith, but it also takes a humility. Lord, I pray that those here who are struggling that God, that they would in and of themselves recognize their guilt as that thief next to Christ did. And Lord, without your forgiveness, that sentence will be carried out. That eternal destiny is waiting for all of us, Lord. For those who are perishing, it's foolishness but to those of us who are wise, it is salvation. Father, we thank you this morning for all that you have given to us. As we look forward to celebrating next week of your resurrection, may we not lose sight of the central, important, powerful message of the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.